Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, we'll look at the devastation and the catastrophic loss of life in Turkey and Syria. Tragedy and death and suffering is a part of living in this fallen world. And why so many are now dead. Albert Moeller. Well, the government didn't schedule the earthquake. What it did was infect the entire system with a form of corruption. And that corruption often meant that buildings were not built to building standards. And a Christian pastor there in Turkey who lost his life. We see the traces of God's handiwork in the midst of that. His last sermon was about the resurrection. Plus, after the surveillance balloon incident, the nation may be waking up to what's happening in China. We'll look at the state of the church. Christians are being arrested for simply teaching their children how to pray and read the Bible. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again, wishing you God's best in these early days of the new year. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We're going to begin with a look at what's happening in Turkey and Syria in the wake of the earthquakes on February 6th. This morning, the death toll surpassed 40,000, making it the worst disaster in Turkey's history. The earthquake is now the world's sixth deadliest natural disaster in the last century. We're freezing. We didn't get any aid at all. No one came to us. No one asked us what we need. Nothing at all. The situation is dire. The death toll just keeps rising. 20,000, 30,000, 40 and rising. The loss of life and the destruction are hard to comprehend. Here's Bob Burney, my colleague on WRFD The Word in Columbus. Here is the latest update on what's going on in Turkey and Syria. When the earthquake occurred, now, uh, what, it's been more than a week. Uh, First, we heard 1,500 dead, and then we heard 2,000 dead, and then we heard 3,000. And then when it hit 5,000, we were just shocked and heartbroken. And then it went to 10,000, and then 15,000, and then 20 and 25. And as of yesterday, they have accounted for over 30 5,000 people killed as a result of these horrific earthquakes in uh, Turkey and Syria. 35,000. The hopes of finding any survivors now are very slim. Uh, They did find an 11-year-old girl on Sunday who had been trapped for more than 160 hours Pulled her out of the rubbish and uh, 11 years old, and it looks like she is going to be okay. A woman, I don't know her age, was rescued after 175 hours as uh, she was pulled from the rubble, and it looks like she's going to be okay. But the likelihood of finding anybody alive now is... um, getting very, very slim. 35, 
thousand dead. Um, Joy and I were talking about this, and, and Joy brought it up, and it's so true. It's hard to comprehend. And you can understand why the skeptics who do not understand God, who do not understand the the fallen nature of this world, but it is easy to understand how someone who doesn't know God, someone who has never read his word, could say, how could a loving God allow or even cause such human tragedy? Well, we know the answer to that. We live in a fallen world, and tragedy and death and suffering is a part of living in this fallen world. Yes, tragedy and death and suffering is part of life in this fallen world. But there's growing interest in what's happening in Turkey. Simply put, there are far more dead today than is necessary. Yes, even after such a brutal earthquake. Here's Albert Moeller from his Briefing podcast. As you're thinking about this theologically, and obviously our hearts and prayers go towards the area there in Turkey and Syria where the devastation and the loss is just so real, we also have to understand that there are real issues to be addressed here. And one is a fundamental distinction that all morally aware people have to make. It is a distinction between natural and moral evil. Now, as you're looking at this in the history of the Christian church, that distinction has been incredibly important. Because if you are looking at something like, say, an earthquake, let's just think about it. You have natural evil. The earthquake happened. There is no accusation that anything caused the earthquake other than natural processes. Now, by the way, Christians have to put natural evil in a particular category that means we look back to Genesis 3. This is not God's intention as seen in the Garden of Eden, but after sin, well, you have the consequences and corruption of sin even now being experienced by the cosmos. But even as we're looking at natural evil explaining much of this, it doesn't explain all of this. And that becomes very clear as you look at what's going on politically right now. And in this case, it's Turkey we're talking about more than Syria. And as you're looking at moral evil here, well, that arises in this case because the government is responsible for some specific actions that have led to at least the staggering death toll in some cases now being experienced in Turkey. So what did the government do? What are we talking about here in terms of the government and moral evil? Well, the government didn't schedule the earthquake. What it did was infect the entire system with a form of corruption, and that corruption often meant that buildings were not built to building standards, and especially with earthquake standards in mind. And then there's a larger political context in which the current president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, had actually gone to the very region, indeed one of the cities suffering most in this earthquake, and had bragged about what he called an amnesty on building codes in order to build buildings faster. Now, there is something to consider here just in terms of history, and a part of the history is that when Erdogan came to power, he came to power largely by criticizing the previous regime for its failures to uphold building codes and other safety requirements, leading to a massive death toll when an earthquake struck Istanbul itself. 
Now, having been in that part of the country, I want to tell you how this works. When you look at a multi-story building, the way that building is built and engineered has a great deal to do with whether or not you're going to survive if you are in it in an earthquake. Now, one of the most frightening aspects of building failure in this case is what is known as pancaking. And so as you look at a multi-story masonry building, pancaking means that the upper stories begin to collapse and they just collapse the stories beneath them until you have a pancaking of the entire structure and you have the structure and everyone in it in a massive pile of deadly rubble. The New York Times reports this way, quote, On the campaign trail in 2019, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey praised legislation that his political party had pushed through allowing property owners to have construction violations forgiven. That's the word amnesty that was used without bringing their buildings up to code. The next statement, the move was risky in Turkey, a fault-ridden land prone to earthquakes that had tightened those same codes to make buildings more tremor-proof, end quote. Now, looking at that, the first distinction we make is between natural evil and moral evil. You don't blame someone for natural evil, unless you're going to blame Adam. But the point is, there is no one to bring to justice. There is no one to accuse when it comes to this earthquake with such devastating effect in Syria and Turkey. But moral evil is something else. And moral evil is something that is particular to human beings. You don't blame the earthquake upon something like a dog's misbehavior or some kind of rampaging tiger. No, human beings and human beings alone made in God's image, Christian understands, are capable of moral evil, sometimes on a staggering scale. Turkey is an overwhelmingly Muslim nation, but there is an indigenous Christian population and there are some faithful believers. Don Crow turned to Todd Nettleton, a voice of the martyrs, from Weva in the nation's capital. One of the things that has happened is churches outside of the earthquake area have gone to minister and and literally kind of put gloves on and started going through the rubble, helping to pull out bodies, helping to try to find survivors. And that is such a witness because, you know, like I say, most Turks think if you're Turkish, you're Muslim. So when these people show up and say, wait a minute, we're Turkish and we're Christians and we're here to help, uh, it is a very eye-opening thing. And one of the things they've asked us to pray for is to pray that that will make an impact, to pray that people will see, oh, wait a minute, there are Turkish Christians. that they, They're Turkish, they love their country, they, they came to help us in our time of need, and they're followers of Jesus Christ. It's not impossible to be Turkish and to be a Christian. So uh, we are praying with them that that, that will happen. But obviously, uh, you know, amidst so much devastation and so much loss, uh, there is just an incredible amount to do. Uh, it's hard to know even where to begin for many of these Christian brothers and sisters. And so uh, it's it's just very difficult situation. And Todd, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, a Turkish pastor who preached his last sermon had no idea it would be, but uh, it's an amazing story all its own. Uh, in one of the Turkish cities there, he and his wife, as I understand it, both lost their lives in the earthquake. But what can you tell us about that remarkable story? Yeah, this is a, it's a sad story in some ways. He and his wife, as you said, were killed in the earthquake. Their young son in the same apartment survived and is still alive. Uh, but the day before, so the earthquake happened early on a Monday morning. The day before, he had preached about the hope 
that we have as Christians for the resurrection from the dead. Wow. We, we know what will happen to us. We will be resurrected. We will be with Jesus. Uh, literally, he preached that on Sunday, and on Monday, he was with Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. And so amazing, encouraging thing, even as we grieve, obviously, this loss, as we pray for this young boy who was left an orphan, uh, and yet we see, you know, the, the traces of God's handiwork in the midst of that. His last sermon was about the resurrection. That is so exciting to realize. Uh, uh, sad, uh, and at the same time, as Paul, uh, as Paul himself said so well, we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. And that's the beauty of the Christian faith is uh, we know, as he also said, to be absent from our bodies is to be present with the Lord. Certainly want to pray for that young boy that they left behind. Yeah, and 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 you know, we've already talked about the the culture that he will grow up in yeah. without his parents. Now, wow. uh, certainly somebody that we want to pray for. Coming up, we'll look at the church in China. Christians are being arrested for simply teaching their children how to pray and read the Bible. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. On February 1st and 2nd, Montana residents noticed a large balloon in the sky. Of course, we now know that it was a Chinese surveillance craft, and there are concerns about subsequent sightings. Well, this series of incidents is, or at least should be, a wake-up call about China. The nation of some 1.4 billion has made a rather dramatic shift in recent days. Our next guest points to the election of President Xi Jinping last October, giving him an unprecedented third five-year term. Don Crow turned to Bob Fu of China Aid. What concerns you most right now about this re-election of Xi Jinping? Uh, as I understand it, this is his third term, which is, is that unprecedented? This is totally unprecedented, Don, compared to his uh, two predecessors, the President Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao's time. According to the Communist Party's own uh, rule, you only have two terms serving as the party secretary and even the constitution. You only serve two terms for the presidency. And yet, dictator Xi Jinping changed the constitution by extending to the third term and, of course, uh, changed the rule of the Communist Party by extending to his third term and uh, essentially became the president for life. So recent events have already shown Xi Jinping sent uh, spy balloons uh, floating uh, for a week uh, over the skies of uh, our sovereign uh, territory in the United States and uh, Canada, of course. Now there's another one in, in North America. And he is not apologizing, um, but continuing his uh, belligerent transnational repression moves, uh, not only in the United States, but all over the world now. Of course, uh, I wish our political leaders 
uh, would act more swiftly against Xi Jinping's uh, repression and spying against the United States' interest. They really are, they being his administration or his uh, brutal government and he himself. They are always pushing the envelope, aren't they, Bob? They're always seeing how far they can push the U.S. and other nations, uh, which is to say, had they dealt with this more summarily, more immediately, uh, I suspect uh, this would have a very dampening effect on his other plans. But this has to be giving him encouragement that perhaps now's the time to go after Taiwan. Is that too far a a reach to imagine that's maybe what he's thinking? I think you made a very uh, right point uh, and correctly seeing so that uh, this is a a balloon instead of uh, really more on spying, but also more importantly is a testing balloon, testing our national leaders' resolve, testing the response of the communist aggression, potentially even aiming at Taiwan as the next target. I mean, just uh, uh, when the balloon was floating from uh, Alaska, North Carolina, South Carolina, the Communist Party actually sent uh, over 20 military fighter jets to threaten Taiwan on crossing the middle line uh, in the Taiwan Street, while the Speaker of Taiwan Parliament, on his way back from attending the uh, International Religious Freedom Summit and uh, the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. So that is certainly a strategic posture, I mean, given both the CIA director, William Burns, and uh, our Navy commander already uh, made clear that Xi Jinping has made the decision to invade Taiwan. It's just a matter of when, not uh, a matter of if. Now, you know firsthand uh, the persecution of yourself, your family, and fellow believers for decades uh, going on. I remember as a young man many years ago reading the stories of people like Watchman Nee and others who were so terribly persecuted. But talk about the growth of persecution, uh, especially first against the Christians, but now against other groups like the Uyghurs and so forth. It really seems to be expanding exponentially, or am I wrong? Oh, you are absolutely correct, Don. I mean, uh, this is the dictator, the Emperor Xi Jinping, essentially, uh, who uh, declared war against the faith, against the religion. I mean, the Christians are being imprisoned and jailed and sentenced to seven years, eight years, 10 years, 15 years for simply organizing a house of worship. I mean, Christians are being arrested right now, facing a trial for simply teaching their children how to pray and read this Bible. I mean, you have uh, up to a million of uh, predominantly Uyghur population, as you just mentioned, in over 360 modern-day concentration camps. I mean, most of them are Muslims, some are Christians, too. So dictator Xi Jinping has made the religious persecution the worst in the 70 years we really uh, not having uh, seen since uh, the Cultural Revolution of uh, Chairman Mao in 1966. So this is a, a very aggressive regime, not only persecuting Christians and Muslims in China and Tibetans as well, but of course they are setting up overseas police stations in New York City, in Paris, Switzerland, I mean in uh, over 20 uh, plus countries. 
So they are monitoring and harassing not only Chinese students in university campuses in the United States, from Purdue University to University of Florida, but also pursuing and aggressively threatening American citizens, Swedish citizens, French citizens abroad. These police stations, what is their ostensible purpose to certainly uh, to simply police the Chinese people who are here? Or what's the idea behind uh, the party doing that? This is Chinese uh, Communist Party's uh, extended arm of law enforcement in foreign soils, wow. basically uh, to uh, threaten and harass, and harass any dissident voices in these uh, countries, but also to use this as a deterrence uh, to silence their family members inside China. I mean, when a Purdue University Chinese student, simply because he attended a Tiananmen Square commemoration a year ago, then the Chinese spies, I mean, their students in the Chinese so-called Students Association in Purdue University, acting as a Chinese agent, basically threatened their fellow student uh, said, you have families back to China. And guess what? Uh, Within a week, um, that student family parents were being arrested, interrogated, and begging for mercy. I mean, this is happening all over the United States, from the campus of uh, Princeton University, Harvard University, you name them. Uh, And so Communist Party also set up the so-called Confucius Institute in our public universities, fully funded by the Chinese Communist Party and its government, uh, with all the faculties uh, salaried and directly sent from China. And they are doing both the spying work and the suppressive work against our academic freedom. They certainly would not uh, uh, invite Dalai Lama and Bob Fu to do a lecture in this Confucius Institute. And uh, no, uh, they set up limits of um, uh, discussion topics in these institutions, Tiananmen Square, the Tibet and Taiwan, and persecution, religious freedom uh, are all forbidden topics to be discussed in these institutions. Coming up, there are encouraging signs of spiritual renewal at Asbury University in Kentucky. Some students felt the need to pray and some other students joined them. And it just grew and grew. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily. And it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. Nonstop prayer and praise in Kentucky, a revival. It's gone viral on social media, and people are traveling thousands of miles to take part. The gathering has been going on nonstop at a small Christian college. Well, that's not the typical headline you'd expect from NBC News. But that is a recent headline 
an accurate description of what's happening at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. Here once again is Bob Burney. The revival down at Asbury University, it continues. It continues. They are still having services in the chapel, in the church, and the revival continues. It's very similar to what happened in the 70s, and there's every indication that it's real, it's genuine. It is a genuine outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we have seen several times during history. This is what we need. The answer to America's problems is not in the next election. It's not getting the right person elected to Congress, to the White House, or even the Supreme Court. All of those things are important. They shouldn't be ignored, obviously. But none of those things will lead to returning our nation to biblical principles. We need a spiritual awakening all across the country. And I'd like to just make one more observation. I just personally am grateful that this revival broke out where, when, and how it did. And and let me explain what I mean, and I hope you understand it in the spirit in which I am saying it. It happened organically, spontaneously. It did not happen in a megachurch. And please, please hear what I'm saying and hear my heart, not just my words. It did not happen under a bunch of smoke, fancy lights, and high technology. I'm not saying there's even anything wrong with that. But it happened in a chapel that I believe is about 100 years old. Old Old-fashioned pews, and from what I'm reading, there aren't even any pads. They are very uncomfortable wood pews. No strobe lights, no smoke. It wasn't a scheduled revival It did not happen because of one dramatic, charismatic preacher. None of those things. And here's the reason I'm glad. If it happened in a megachurch with a very well-known charismatic preacher, and I don't mean charismatic theologically. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about charismatic personality-wise. Somebody well-known has written a lot of books and so forth. If it happened like that, then all across America, people would be trying to copy it. They would be wanting that preacher to come and preach at their church. They would want all of the technology and the lights and the smoke and, and all of that because people would say, that's what led to the revival. None of those things had anything to do with this revival. And please, I'm not throwing shade on new technology. I'm not throwing shade on any of that. And I'm certainly not criticizing well-known preachers that God has used in a wonderful way. I'm just saying 
The only recipe here was the Spirit of God. It wasn't planned. There was a group of students, and if I understand correctly, could be wrong, but from what I've read, what I understand correctly, they just had a regular chapel. Nothing terribly unusual about the chapel. But some students felt the need to pray. And they stayed after chapel and began praying, and God began dealing with their heart. And some other students joined them, and then other students joined them, and other joined them, and it just grew and grew and grew. There was no leader. There was no praise band that was responsible It was just a move of God's Spirit. And I think that is so important that we remember that. And it proves it can happen anywhere. Coming up. What God can do through the power of prayer are true not just for a few people, but for all believers. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, We've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. I was encouraged when I heard about what's happening at Asbury University. It's probably too soon to tell exactly what fruit will be born, but what caught my attention is the emphasis on prayer. And prayer is what marked the ministry of George Mueller in the 19th century. Mueller is what inspired Brent Patrick McDougall in his new book, Prayer Power, 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller. I talked to Dr. McDougall, a Baptist pastor in Tennessee, on my program. Why do we so grossly underestimate the resource we have at our hands, the invitation that we have from God himself to come before his throne of grace um, to meet with him? It's so true that oftentimes we don't experience power in prayer. I've met people over the course of many years of ministry who say they just feel like they can't experience any breakthrough. They wonder if prayer is just for the super saints. They don't understand the teachings of uh, the Bible about prayer. And because uh, just in that futility, they don't exercise their faith through prayer. But I really wanted people to know that these promises that are present all throughout Scripture, these miraculous promises about what God can do through the power of prayer, are true not just for a few people, but for all believers who can learn how to pray. You know, the disciples, they asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And he did. Mm -hmm. We need to learn how to pray. And uh, as we learn how to pray, we too can experience that power through prayer. Well, this may seem like a simplistic question, but I think it's one that many believers still ponder. What is the purpose of our prayer? Scripture says he knows what we need before we ask. And many of us conclude, well, if he already knows, what would be the point? What is the purpose uh, in prayer and God's invitation? The primary purpose is not asking for what we need, although that is certainly something that is available to us. 
Uh, the purpose of prayer, I believe, is found in scriptures such as uh, Psalm 63, where David talks about this earnest, beautiful, passionate prayer just to be in the presence of God. Mm. He says, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. He cries out to the living God and he says, God, I just want to be with you. I want to be where you are and I want you to be in me. And it's from that place of passion, I believe, that then we are able to ask for the things that we need. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's, he's teaching us about his presence and about his kingdom. And that's the place to start. It's not so much just a litany of what we would ask for, but instead to learn to pray in such a way that we really are experiencing communion, a daily communion with our Heavenly Father. If we can't learn to pray like that, it's unlikely that we're really going to learn a deep dependence mm -hmm. and a trust such that we will be able to ask rightly for the things that we need. I love the, the use of the word communion. It's not a one-way street where I simply express what's on my heart, walk away and, and engage in other activities. But we are in relationship. We're in fellowship with God and uh, he speaks to us and we bear our hearts to him as well. Talk a little bit about George Mueller. You uh, mentioned in the subtitle, 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller. Now, this is a, a 19th century pastor that many of our listeners may be unfamiliar with. Yes. Well, I learned about George Mueller by hearing these stories about answers to prayer. And Mueller was a pastor in the 19th century who mostly worked in Bristol, England, but his work was not only in the walls of the church as a pastor. He was out in the community and especially helping to care for orphans who were on the street. In fact, over the course of his ministry, Mueller opened four orphanages that allowed him to care for 10,000 children that were uh, destitute. So he could provide for them food, shelter, uh, education, and also spiritual nourishment. So Mueller was known as having a heart for children, you know, and that's what the Bible says. You know, God is a father to the fatherless. He, he loves the little ones. He looks after the ones who have no father. And then he calls people to be fathers to those uh, who don't have a father. So that's what Mueller did. He was known for his care for orphans, but he was mostly known to be a person of great prayer. In fact, Mueller said that over the course of his lifetime, he experienced 50,000 answers to prayer. He never asked for a dime for the orphanages. Uh, he never um, asked for a donation from anyone regarding the buildings. If he had um, if he had been in today's work, he would have raised about $170 million over the course of his ministry, and it all happened through prayer. He just asked the Lord for what he needed. Well, as I was learning about his life, I remember telling a story once about a time in which he was caring for the orphans, and they had no bread and no milk for breakfast. They were needing to get to their classes for school and Unfortunately, they were going to have to go hungry. And so he called the children together. He called all the adults and he said, let's all bow. And they prayed a prayer of thanks for what God was about to provide. Even though there was nothing on the table, they said, thank you, Lord, for what you're about to do. And it wasn't long before there was a knock at the door. 
the milk truck had broken down outside the orphanages and the milk was going to spoil. Could they have use of it to give to the orphans? So they had milk for the day. And then the baker sent word that he had overbaked for the day and had extra bread. Could he send it over to the orphanage to feed the children? <laughs> Mueller saw so many things like that happen. And I believe his ability to give thanks before the prayer was answered was part of his secret. So I heard all these stories about his life, and I thought, you know, I'm tired of telling George Mueller stories. I want to <laughs> live George Mueller stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to experience power in prayer for myself. And so that was really a, a beginning of a journey where I started to study his life and really the biblical principles that he lived by, and I began to experience breakthrough. I saw such amazing things happen immediately as I put these things into practice. And so I wrote this book because I wanted the people to experience that very same power in prayer. Uh, George Mueller said, every believer, when they draw near to God, should have full confidence that God is listening and willing to answer prayer. And our difficulty seems to be that these promises are just too great. We think, well, that can't be what God means. We stagger at the promises through our unbelief, and therefore, Mueller says, we fail to secure the treasure that was purchased for us by Christ. And what that means is that all of us have access to the throne of God, as amazing as that may seem. Mm -hmm. We all have access to the one Father. We can all go directly to God. And all the promises of Scripture are for everyone who comes by faith. Coming up. We give up way too soon. We don't pray through problems. More with Brent Patrick McDougall and the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. There's no shortage of books about prayer, but any book on the subject is only as effective as it is put into practice. Brent Patrick McDougall has done all that he can to make his book practical and accessible. Let's return for a few more minutes of my conversation with Dr. McDougall on prayer power, 40 days of learning to pray like George Mueller. The book is divided into six sections. Uh, talk about the importance of these six topics and the order that they're in as uh, uh, a reader goes through the 40 days to learn to pray, uh, as did uh, George Mueller. The first one is to abide in Christ. That comes from John chapter 15, in which he talks about abide in me and I will abide in you. So every day seeking to become happy in the Lord is our first principle. You know, getting our hearts right, just glad to be living for God today, to abide in him and to day by day, hour by hour, live in the presence of God, listening and looking to God for everything that you need. The second principle is complete dependence on God. It's really a posture bringing everything before the Lord in prayer. There's the foundation of abiding, but then there's the way that in all things you, you bring before your Heavenly Father your needs and concerns. Now, the third principle is to forsake sin. This is really important because oftentimes we have sin in our lives that blocks the way in which we experience the presence of God. And we might not think that there's a connection between forsaking sin and prayer, but Jesus said, if there's anything in your life that's causing you to sin, cut it out immediately. Don't abide it. Don't rationalize it. Don't put it off for another day. Get rid of it because it gets in the way of the way that you're experiencing God. The fourth principle is to exercise your faith. Now, this means that 
you are stepping in faith, even if you don't see steps two, three, and four, you're taking that first step. You're listening to the Holy Spirit. You're willing to, to move by faith and to trust that God is going to lead you with each new step. You're not waiting on God to put it all together or show you every single thing, but instead you're moving by faith. That's the fourth principle. The fifth principle is to learn to pray in the will of God. And so that means seeking the Lord through Scripture and in the power of the Spirit, emptying yourself of your own will, saying, not my will, God, but what you want. Mueller said that's 90% of the problem, is that we bring an agenda into our mm-hmm. prayers rather than leaving the outcomes to the Lord. And then finally, sixth, it's to persevere in prayer. We give up way too soon. We don't pray through problems or the biggest things that we want to see in life. But Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And actually, a better way to translate those phrases are keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. He taught us that we should always pray and never give up. So persevere in prayer and wait for the Lord to work out what you want to see happen. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to a friend and send them to ChristianOutlook.com encourage them to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin, producers David Pushan, Mike Cook, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. <laughs>